from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Which is, is really quite remarkable. These are people who are not even capable of blinking their eyelids on command, but they can use their imagination to signal their consciousness through their maps. So that there's something about comprehension there and sort of reinstating what was in your brain um, when I hear your story. Oh, well, maybe that person was just born with a brain that was more likely to make them a good musician. We know that's not the case. How do we know that? I'm Sarah Fenske. Rebecca Schwartzlows studies the brain. She's a postdoctoral research fellow in the psychiatry department at the Washington University School of Medicine. She and two colleagues actually discovered and named a new part of the brain. And that was only the beginning of her work. Rebecca's new book is Brainscaped, the warped, wondrous maps written in your brain and how they guide you. It was supported by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation Program for the Public Understanding of Science and Technology. And she joins us today to discuss so, Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So your book is about brain maps, and, and people may take that to mean the ongoing effort to map the brain, but that's not it. What do you mean by a brain map? Yes, this is always a point that I need to clarify at the outset. So the brain, it, even though it looks like one big solid organ, is, is comprised of many different areas that kind of specialize in doing different things. And um, so if you zoom in on one of these areas um, and you study how it's organized, you find that there's actually, in, in many of these regions, a literal map, a representation of the things that you feel, the spaces around you, the ways that you can move your body, um, that are laid out across the, the surfaces and within the tissues of your brain. And when you say they're laid out, you list the ingredients as these. It's not like it's there with marker or pencil. It's cells, electricity, and time. How did those things come together to make these maps? Yes. Well. That's one of the challenges of thinking about brain maps. You can't see them when you just look at a surface of a brain. But the um, the way that cells in the brain communicate with one another and represent information is by firing electrical impulses. And the rate of that firing is is, is effectively like the, the ink on a map. It is, it is representing information about that map. And you can, um, by knowing, by studying the, the map and how it, it is firing, the cells within it, you can see, um, you can actually, using our technologies, see these maps, render them visible um, in, in humans and animals with a variety of different methods. And so you can see these maps basically while we're alive, while things are firing. Once we're dead, these maps just kind of look like meat. <laughs> exactly. Yes, they do. <laughs> Maybe not the, the finest way to put that, but... <laughs> no, but it, it's true that, you know, I mean, really our brain is kind of a big chunk of meat. And what's amazing is that while we're alive and we're gathering information out about our world, um, it is alive in this way that is representing all of that information that we're taking in. And so what's neat is kind of understanding these maps helps us to understand how we do that. So there are different maps for different senses. And the S1 touch map that you spent a lot of time writing about in this book, this was one of the most interesting for me. And I feel like it was also maybe one of the easier ones for me to grasp. So maybe this is something that'll make sense to a radio audience. How does this work? 
Yeah, so information is coming in from touch receptors on your skin, and it's coming into your brain, and, and your brain has to somehow process that information, right? And so there are inequalities in your skin. So we have more touch receptors in certain parts of our bodies than others. Um, but we still have effectively too much information for our brain to be able to process for us of this sensory information. So when it comes into these areas organized as maps, they kind of pool information so that there are parts of the body that are represented in a privileged fashion. And those parts are particularly our faces and most of all our fingertips and hands. Um, so that information that's coming from those touch receptors are, are very fine-grained and stays very detailed um, all the way to our brains and to our ability to perceive. And that's why when you want to feel something, know something from touch, you reach out and touch it with your fingers. You don't rub your elbow on it. <laughs> um, so that kind of information that we maintain with these maps is guiding our behavior and how we collect information. And so this was sort of first figured out by a neuroscientist who was treating epileptic patients. How did he get a handle on this touch map through the work that he was doing there. Yes, well, you know, I mean, it, it must have been such a heady time, and I don't mean that as a pun, um, but he, he um, it, Wilder Penfield was was um, learning how to treat epilepsy, and, and in order to treat epilepsy, um, uh, what you need to do is, is find out where um, seizures are starting in the brain, because sometimes that means there's like a region of the brain that is kind of damaged or diseased, and, and if you can kind of... Um, remove that area, you can sort of end the, the origin of the seizure. Mm -hmm. So he was doing this very pioneering work, um, which continues to this day that, that, that um, neurosurgeons treating epilepsy will, will often, if they need to surgically treat, they will go in and do this procedure where they need to open up the skull and they, they take electrodes and they, they um, kind of explore this area of the brain, so um, the, the area of the brain where they think that the um, seizure is beginning. And so in this case, he one of his kind of earliest papers describing what he was discovering um, had to do with the touch map. And he would kind of put his electrode in a part of this this map in the brain of touch. And, um, and the patients were awake at the time because that was an important part of it. They had to report what they were feeling and, and, and when they started feeling like they might have a seizure. Um, and so he would stimulate and, and they would feel things in different parts of their bodies and they could describe that to him and say, oh, right now my, my thumb feels numb and right now my, my you know, tongue is zinging. <laughs> um, All from him touching a little part of this, this brain area. Yes, well, his electrode had, um, it was a stimulating electrode, so it would actually, the, it would put a little bit of electricity in the brain and because um, neurons represent information with these, this electricity, he could actually kind of get them to fire and it would trick the brain into thinking that they were feeling sensations with their bodies. Hmm. It was so fascinating. And part of what was fascinating about this book wasn't just learning about these brain maps, but learning about how scientists have gotten a handle on these brain maps. And in so many cases, it felt like it began where they were studying some uh, people where something had gone wrong. Like another example of this is the Japanese soldiers who ended up blinded in the earliest part of the 20th century. This kind of led to a huge breakthrough in what we understand about our site maps. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, at the at the time, um, it had to do with technology, and and guns were getting unfortunately more efficient, and and the bullets were traveling faster, and um, 
able to go further. And as a result, um, during this war, a, 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 an ophthalmologist who studied vision in the eyes wound up studying the brain because um, he was finding that patients who were being kind of receiving gunshot wounds and that were slicing through the head but leaving them still alive, um, these patients were partially blind. They would have holes in their vision. And he used this to figure out exactly where and how this visual map, this very, very important visual map in our brain is located and laid out because effectively when a bullet would kind of pierce that map, it would leave this permanent hole of blindness in the patient's visual field so that mm -hmm. ever after they would have like a hole in what they could see. And so even if your eye would seem to be something that would be working properly, if this part of your brain has been damaged, that part of sight is gone. Yeah, I mean, that's what's kind of mind-bending about these maps is that we, we really ascribe our ability to see to our eyes and our ability to feel to our skin. But at the end of the day, what determines what we perceive is what's happening in these maps and inside of our brain. And you can see that because if you either damage these maps or you stimulate these maps, you can either take away a sensation that a person should be feeling or you can create a sensation that they shouldn't be feeling because they're not being touched or not seeing something. So one of the parts of this book that I found so fascinating is the areas where our brain maps are the same or very similar from person to person, and then some areas where our brain maps end up diverging, depending on things that happen to us or, you know, all sorts of experiences. One of the most interesting anecdotes for me, you write about how um, researchers had people watch a movie. This movie was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And while people were watching this old spaghetti western, the same parts of their brain maps lit up at like the same parts of the movie. Does that mean that we're all thinking the exact same things as we're watching a movie? Well, you know, in some ways it does. It, it, what it means is that there are such, there are these special universals to how our brains are, are generally laid out and how we perceive the world. And when you and I have the same experience and see the same thing with the same meaning, um, and we are extracting that meaning and perceiving those pictures and images and words, um, this, generally the same areas of our brain, especially in these maps, that these kinds of parts of the brain are very, very similar, the activity from one person to the next. And in fact, people who've looked at how they this kind of they call this kind of synchrony um, that happens between individuals if, if if you tell me a story and I hear the story there's actually synchrony between our brain maps and their activity and that how well they synchronize reflects how well I understand the story you told me hmm. so that there's something about comprehension there and sort of reinstating what was in your brain um, when I hear your story. It's just, it's so fascinating to me to think about those connections actually being etched in our brain. Um, at the same time that there's some, there can be some big differences between our brains. I loved how you described how the culture that we're raised in can affect our maps in some tangible ways. Can you give us an example of that? Well, probably the best documented has to do specifically because there's unfortunately a, a dearth of, of, of research on cross-cultural differences in the brain. That's mm -hmm. something that I think in part because of kind of our funding and the challenges of having a big expensive neuroimager, um, we just don't do enough of. Um, so probably the best example of how um, experience kind of can uh, can 
literally mold a, a brain map, um, is the, the kind of effect of um, musical training on, um, on the, the, the motor map um, in our, our brains, the, the part of the, the brain that allows us to make movements. And there are kind of zones of this map that are dedicated to different things. And so um, kind of the best established um, example is a, it, that if you give children at a, at a pretty young age, you know, they're kindergarten-ish, um, extensive training with something like playing piano or or playing um, the violin, um, they, they develop kind of, they expand the portion of their motor map that represents the parts of their body that are used for playing. So mm -hmm. in the case of strings, um, they specifically have like a, an expansion of their left hand where they would be fingering their strings. Um, in the case of, of um, piano, they have expansion for both hands. And um, this affects not just the ability to play their instrument, but their kind of manual dexterity at other things. And you kind of head off the skeptic who might hear that and say, oh, well, maybe that person was just born with a brain that was more likely to make them a good musician. We know that's not the case. How do we know that? Right. So there, there's there been a study where they actually assigned kids to having formal training at playing a, an instrument versus being in kind of a music, music appreciation class. And they, they scanned them before and after mm. they had had this training and that they and they could see this difference in the, the kind of growth of that cortical area, that, that um, brain map. So, um, so that, that's kind of our, our sort of our gold standard for how we think about what is a causal effect in science, exactly. We're talking today to Rebecca Schwartzlows. Her new book is Brainscapes, The Warped and Wondrous Maps Written in Your Brain and How They Guide You. This book was just so interesting. Um, I learned so much from this. And this is somebody who has no knowledge of neuroscience coming in. Rebecca, I love how you made this just so approachable, even for people who aren't, you know, they're not coming into this in a science class. They're just self-guided on their tour. What was really interesting, though, is the practical application of all of this. Now that we know so much about these brain maps, what can we do using them? So much. <laughs> That's <laughs> That's a, a huge question. It's <laughs> a big question because there there is so much potential. And I tell in the story, back in the 1800s when the um, when the motor maps were discovered, almost as soon as they were discovered, neurosurgeons started using them to pinpoint where to do surgery because they could say, oh, well, a person is having a seizure in this part of their brain and this has started suddenly, so they probably have like a tumor here. And, and they knew suddenly where to go in this big chunk of brain as we're talking about this big organ to find the problem and to, to take care of it. So that was an amazing technological advance. Well, now, as we know so much more and are ever learning more about the, the organization layout and kind of um, malleability of these maps, um, it does open up a great deal of of potential, um, especially with the technologies that we have so that now we can kind of read information out of these maps without having to even open up the skull um, and, uh, you know, certainly to, you know, do anything that would um, eventually harm a person. So um, I think uh, there, there's a wide spectrum. So in the book, I talk about actually being able to detect consciousness in patients who are in a vegetative state. Yeah, that um, was a fascinating part. Yeah, yeah. So that these are patients who, you know, we know are not just conscious, but kind of capable enough to follow instructions um, so that they can um, imagine something on command when told, which is, is really quite remarkable. These are people who are not even capable of blinking their eyelids on command, but they can use their imagination to signal 
signal their consciousness through their maps. And scientists can look at those maps and know that they're thinking that. I mean, that's the, both aspects of that are so fascinating to me. Yeah, it, it is remarkable. I mean, that's the power of knowing how these things work. Once you know how perception, imagination, action, how those things are processed in the brain, you can you can peek in and you can observe it. And so there are also, um, you know, rapidly developing field of brain-computer interfaces that are working on um, on doing just that, on, ease, on, on listening in on brain activity or in some cases kind of influencing brain activity in ways that can transmit information in and out of our brains, um, potentially across from one person to another or from us to a computer. Um, and that is growing rapidly. So that's cool, but it also sounds vaguely terrifying. I don't know that I want scientists to have the ability to, to put thoughts in my brain or, frankly, to tell if I'm lying, which is something that you get into a little bit. Right. Well, you know, I think what is really important and something that I really tried hard to do in the book is to is to kind of lay clear how, you know, there are there are some real concerns, um, and there are also some concerns that are, concerns that are more in the realm of sort of science fiction. So, so um, you know, we're not at the stage where we're going to be, you know, in the matrix. And and in fact, thank you. <laughs> That's such a relief. <laughs> the um, the uh, the method of for lie detection that has kind of arisen so far is as is very flawed. And so, thank you know, I think. Thankfully, because I think it would be very worrisome for us to be using a brain-based lie, lie detection technology. There are enough flaws that, it, that it, the, this kind of evidence is not admissible in court. Um, but, um, but that said, uh, when we provide enough data about our particular brains, so that this is one of the key things, is that a brain can usually re be read best if you give a lot of examples of, of your brain doing something. Mm -hmm. And each brain is different enough that it's hard... For, it's, it's possible in some ways, but you know, the more I want to know from your brain, the more I need to study how things work in your brain and get examples from you. And we can use machine learning algorithms then to take those examples and extract enough information to later kind of read out the information we want to know. So one of the things that we need to be thinking about kind of and being more cautious about at this stage is sort of who we're giving our neural data to and who we're, mm -hmm. who we're letting train a machine learning algorithm on our brain, perhaps without realizing it. Hmm. Boy, one more thing to worry about here, <laughs> the <laughs> privacy of our inner thoughts. <laughs> well, this book is so interesting. I want to recommend people give this a read, not just the book itself, and, and Rebecca does a wonderful job walking people through this. There's also just some great illustrations in this book that just hit home right when I was feeling just a little bit confused. Those illustrations perfectly explained what was going on. When did you realize that, you know what, some of the, um, the less smart readers may need a visual aid here. Oh, you know, it's thing is that it's not about smart. I think everybody, including scientists, need a visual aid. And, and in fact, I think, I think that's one of the exciting things about brain maps is it helps us understand a little bit why a visual aid, why mm -hmm. seeing something represented is so very helpful for comprehending it. And um, so, you know, very early on, um, when I was first talking to the to my editor of this book, we, we thought, you know, I, I thought this has got to be shown somehow because mm -hmm. it, it is a very spatial idea. So if you don't see it, it can be confusing. And um, so then actually we had a lot of fun looking for an illustrator. Um, I really didn't want it to feel like uh, you were reading a 
textbook and, um, you know, you were in class. I wanted it to be something kind of that sparked the imagination and that was beautiful as well as informative. So I sort of wanted to go back to um, sort of Renaissance and anatomical drawings and have this sort of pen and ink style. And I found uh, Paul Kim, the illustrator, who just did a beautiful job. Yeah, I mean, the, some of these illustrations made me laugh out loud in a good way. They're just so clever and, and just so helpful. Um, and Rebecca, in our final minute and a half here, I kind of have buried the lead. I, I mentioned early on that you were part of a small team that discovered and named a new brain area. And this is a huge deal. This is the fusiform body area. You got to give us just the short version of this story. <laughs> sure. Well, um, when I was in graduate school at MIT, I was working with uh, Dr. Nancy Kanwisher, who is uh, just a, a pioneer in the field of functional neuroimaging. And she had done a lot of work to kind of identify and describe this really special and very important brain area called the fusiform face area. And if this area of the brain is damaged, you can um, lose the ability to even recognize your children, your, mm. your spouse, yourself in the mirror. So it's profoundly important for recognizing faces. Um, and there was some evidence that it might also be involved in recognizing um, bodies. So we also recognize body parts, you know, like we, we use the body to extract information about who a person is and how they move. And um, so we investigated that and we discovered that it was actually um, a, a neighboring region, a region right next door that instead of specializing in faces, specialized in, in bodies. And, um, and so we, we had to give it a name to talk about it in the paper. So <laughs> we called it the fusiform body area, just kind of in parallel. Um, you know, but the, the truth is that as neuroscience keeps working forward, we keep discovering these new, you know, they're little tiny slivers of brain that do these, you know, wonderful, magnificent things. And so it really is a, a kind of a pioneering endeavor. It's really exciting. And um, and the truth is that we keep discovering brain areas every day in the field. Boy, it is so exciting. And just think about if we couldn't recognize each other's bodies, like this book will help you understand the world in, in all these, these minute ways that things break down. So interesting. So Rebecca Schwartzlow, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.